Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which we work hard to keep friendly and inclusive. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. Lisa Gunter is an assistant professor at Virginia Tech in the School of Animal Sciences and directs the Laboratory for Animal Behavior and Welfare. Lisa's research explores the behavior and welfare of companion animals, specifically our interactions with them as it relates to animal sheltering, behavioral issues, and training. Lisa combines a love of research with hands-on dog training skills. I wanted to have someone from the shelter world on the podcast because, depending on what you mean by source, shelters are a source of dogs. Lisa and I talked about how shelters can best help dogs cope with the shelter experience and what the future of sheltering might look like. Well, hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jessica. So I generally start out by asking people about the uh, dogs or sometimes even cats in their houses. And I heard a rumor that you have a brand new one. <laughs> yes, it's true. Um, I'll start back with the, the dog we've had for okay. a few years because I feel like she'd be sad. Fine, if she mentioned fine. Uh, <laughs> but, but she's so great. Uh so uh, her name's Andorra. She goes by Andy with her friends. Um, and she is a great Pyrenees. Uh, she came to us. Um, my wife is an emergency veterinarian. And she came in when she was about eight weeks. Um, it was quite sick. Uh, and her uh, family, unfortunately, couldn't care for her. And so she was surrendered to the clinic that my wife worked at. And we were lucky enough to, to bring her home. So... Uh, she's a medical lemon <laughs> to the nth degree. Um, her her biggest medical issue is that she has a liver shunt, um, which is going to unfortunately uh, limit the duration of her life, which makes me quite sad because she's behaviorally such a wonderful dog. So um, we we love all the time we get with her because she does. She, everyone is a friend to Andy, whether it's a you know a cow or a horse or a person or another dog or a statue. Girl says that is a friend and can I That's go awesome. say hi? So she, <laughs> she's lovely. Um, so um, we've had her for a couple of years. She was a pandemic puppy. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so she, she's a lot of fun. She's a great Pyrenees through and through. I just did the sea bark and they were like <laughs> serious concern. The fact that she uh, escapes or likes to roam off. I said, oh, oh my God, I was I was dog so. sitting for a great Pyrenees and I put her in my backyard, which was fully fenced. And I took a nap and I got a phone call from my friend who owned the dog and was like, someone has acquired my dog out on the street and looked at her collar and called me and uh, and do you have eyes on her by any chance? And I was like, <laughs> like I sat up in bed and yelled at my husband. I was like, Chris, can you see Lucy? And she had, so you know how big a great Pyrenees is. I know you do. She had, I, the best I yes. could tell is she had squeezed out through six inches gap. Because I could see the tufts of hair. Impressive. But I, was like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know how you did that. 
yeah, she's um, a bit smaller because mm. of the liver shunt, so she's like oh, sixty-five okay. pounds. Uh, she's a mini. So she's the mini we, mini we variety. Yeah, yeah. We call her our apartment peer or our lesser Pyrenees. Um, and uh, yeah, she she loves to roam. Uh, she's slow though, so you know you'll be like working out in the yard, and and you know say we we there was a time that we didn't have a fenced yard, much to my wife's absolute regret. Um, and you know you she'd be in the yard with you, and then all of a sudden you kind of get stuck. You know you you get distracted doing something, and she's gone. But she hasn't ran away. You know she's not running away. She's, she's trundling like, down like, the street. Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, we lived in South Carolina for a time, and we lived at the end of this cul-de-sac, and it was like, oh wait, there. Wait, okay, we're gonna we're gonna go get her. So. Um, one time, I think she ended up over at someone's house. They were barbecuing, and she invited herself right into the house. <laughs> uh, so tracks. Um, and then our newest addition uh, is Sydney. Uh, we call her Sid for short. And uh, we adopted her in October, so she's relatively new. Um, and she uh, is from our uh, local shelter, um, our local municipal shelter in Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, so the Regional Center for Animal Care and Protection. We love our friends at RCACP. Um, and she was brought into the shelter in August and um, uh, and she was part of the Virginia Tech uh, College of Veterinary Medicine, their canine instructors program where they bring in dogs from other shelters. Um, and RCACP um, often has overcrowding issues and so they stay with the uh, vet school for a couple of months and then they're adopted out. And um, I was involved in a class that we, <laughs> we had a behavior and socialization class. So we would have our students every week that were uh, helping train the dogs. And <laughs> she came out one day, like right in the beginning. And uh, she's a little 30 pound thing. She, uh, we, we uh, did a wisdom panel with her and she's about two thirds cattle dog. Um, and uh yeah she was just a little i don't know a little ray of sunshine and again loved everyone she saw and she did not get the cattle dog memo on that one uh just little wiggles everywhere when she sees folks um and yeah we did several sleepovers with her about five we took her home every weekend and uh we were looking around for another dog though we were like oh we're doing these sleepovers with her because she really needs to get out and we were looking around because we had had a border collie and we were interested in getting another border collie. Um, and we were even considering a sport mix. So we were kind of, uh, we had just had a wonderful border collie. So we're just real partial. And she came from the animal shelter and we were cruising animal shelters, rescues. We got turned down by a rescue. That was really great. As an animal behaviorist and a veterinarian, that was a humbling experience. Um, and, um, and yeah, and then finally, you know, we slept, we did a lot of sleepovers with her. She sort of just wore us down with her like little charm and her and Andy got on well. So we brought her home and then she decided to let her true color shine. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> so, oh, she's just, um, so I guess one of my bugaboos, which I feel like makes me like a lesser human is like the whole barking mm. thing. Like I don't love barking and she was quiet. <laughs> I mean, and, and. I like can't believe this that like oh my gosh like I fell for it, uh, but yeah you did we took five home, sleepovers like, you know these 
I know. And they, I just think they weren't yeah. long enough. So, you know, again, um, longer duration of fostering would have helped improve I mean, I don't my, know if you uh, know this, my prediction but it takes abilities. a dog like 10 days to settle in. I don't know if you've ever heard that, that little fact of it. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm right, going to experimentally right. test that, but at least on the anecdotally, yeah. um, tracks, um, yeah, so she was a quiet little bee, and I was like, "Wow, this is really impressive." I would I would watch her attend to stimuli, but not bark, and I was like, "Wow, that's so cool." Guess what? It wasn't true because once she settled in, she just has commentary about everything. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's that's been exciting. Um, it's I mean, it's challenging, um, but at the same time, like, there's a part of me I think, like, as a scientist and a, tr- and a trainer, that I like want to try to figure it out and try to uh, get the behavior a little bit more under control, which I think we've gotten some. How um, long have you had her? But How yeah. long have you had her now? Yeah. Like two okay. months. Two months. Yeah. So give, your, yeah, give yourself talk. some time. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so funny because our Pyrenees is actually really quiet, really quiet. And so, uh, so, but it's good. I was a little worried so far. We haven't seen uh, kind of a, a, a like a, um, a group effect, you know, that like she starts barking and then Andy's like, that's a good idea. I've never had it before. So far, we haven't had that happen yet. Uh, she's just kind of quiet, but uh, yeah. So it's good. It, it's, it's, um, it's fun having, it's fun and challenging having an adolescent again. We just have, you They're know. They're different. I, I, yeah, you know, and you, you we had two dogs uh, growing up uh, that grew up together that we had since they were, uh, Sonia, our last border collie, was um, we got her around six, seven months, and Sweetie, I had known her since she was about four months, but we adopted her when she was a year and a quarter, and then we had them for their entire lives. I mean, like, what a privilege. I mean, to me, like, what a privilege, but also, too, it's like you get used to, like, the old dog behavior, <laughs> and then these young upstarts you come, forget. and you're like, wait, yeah. what? Yeah, you forget. You think you're like a better trainer than you really are. Like, you know, all that stuff. I think it's it's humbling. And, yeah, I'm on the other yeah. side of it right now but, with Dash is seven. And I'm like starting to to do more things with him um, recently and being like, oh, you're being really good. I don't remember you being this good before. And then I'm like, yeah, that's not me. <laughs> that's that's age. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's hard to tease out. And I think like, depending on what kind of mood, mood you're in, you're like, you may have had a little or a lot to do with that. So, so then you're uh, the other major life companion would be your research. And yeah, I'm not asking about your wife, your research. <laughs> I didn't know where you were going with that. I was like, this could go you a could. lot of different directions. So you study, tell yeah. us what you study. Oh, okay. So um, I, I study companion animal behavior and welfare. Um, and I have a, I guess I would say special focus, um, for dogs living in animal shelters. So what does that look like? What kinds of, what kinds of studies do you do? Do your students do like, (laughs) again, I know, but tell me, uh, Uh, well, it runs the gamut. Um, early in my career, um, we took a look at breed labels in shelters, um, um, breed stereotypes, what happens when we remove breed labels from dogs in shelters since, Second study, we don't really uh, know what dogs are in shelters. And in fact, they're a hodgepodge of, a hodgepodge of several breeds. Um, and we're not great at uh, visually identifying dogs that have multiple breeds, um, or at least more than one breed. We're not very great at. Um, and then we've looked at post-adoption interventions, um, 
adoption and relinquishment in the shelter. Um, my, uh, I worked on a paper with Sasha Propopova on that. Um, I'm very interested in this idea of kind of relinquishment and why it happens. And, um, and then later on in my uh, uh, grad program, I took a look at behavioral indicators of welfare and sort of what things do dogs do in, shelter, in, in the kennel itself that's related to physiological measures, perhaps uh, testing um, in cognitive paradigms. Again, kind of this overall idea of really trying to understand the animal's experience. And then like a very big part of my career since I guess 2016 is looking at fostering interventions. So uh, we've looked at um, what we call field trips. So those are just a couple hours out of the shelter. We've looked at sleepovers where the dogs spend one or two nights. Um, we've also looked, um, we're writing up for publication week-long fostering. So that's a dog staying in a house for one week. Uh, and we also looked at fostering during the pandemic. So kind of that very interesting time in all of our lives that we're, I guess, sort of coming out of and what that looked like for dogs in shelters. Um, and then in terms of other work, um, we've also, oh, and we, I can talk about that this today. Um, during that project, we also looked at safety net fostering. So that's the fostering of owned animals when their folks are going through some sort of hardship and they need a little bit of support so um, they can keep their pet. And, uh, and then of course, there's all the things and the questions we can ask in the animal shelter. So um, we've looked at housing, we've looked at social interaction with dogs um, and, and people. So yeah, I feel like that's a that's, few things. That's a couple of few yeah. things. So, and what I was hoping we could dig into today is the stuff that you've been yeah. talking about as sort of this later part of your career, which is, um, mm. I'm gonna try to summarize it and you tell me if you disagree. But I would summarize it okay. as looking at sort of how to make the experience of being in a shelter better or what are the things that make being in a shelter challenging and how can we change those? Is that, would you? Yeah. No. I, yeah. Do you agree with that? You, you nailed it. You, sh you should be in my in the elevator with me when there I you go. my work. So yes. We'll, we'll trade. You can do it for me too. Um, I realized though- uh, yeah. But before we do that, there's going to be, I'm definitely going to mm -hmm. get people being like, oh my God, I want to do exactly what Lisa does. So maybe you should fill us in <laughs> on what it looks like to get to where you are. Um, oh, if yeah. you don't mind, because I, I always get questions like that yeah. when I talk to people with careers like yours. Oh, sure. Uh, well, um, it starts by doing nothing related to what I'm doing now. <laughs> And uh, and I I uh, pursued a, an undergraduate degree um, in uh, to be totally specific music journalism. I was writing about bands and art, and I knew I wanted to be a writer. And so I went off to this school called the Evergreen State College. Uh, no grades, um, which was very exciting to me. Even though I'd done really well in school, I still thought that was really cool. And um, and I just and it was a school that a friend had told me about. Wow, you you, you have to write a lot. I, I thought that sounded really cool. Um, and so I got my undergraduate degree, and I worked uh, at New uh, Alternative News Weekly. Um, I was doing music PR work, so very different. And then um, I was I was living up in uh, the Pacific Northwest at the time. And so I came back to the Bay Area and I was kind of doing some odd job stuff as you do after college. And I decided to volunteer at the animal shelter. And it was ac across the way. Um, 
And I walked in to learn about their volunteer opportunities. And they had this uh, class called Second Chance. And this class was we would uh, bring dogs to uh, shelter dogs to this class a couple times a week. And we would just help teach them behaviors, but in classroom setting. Um, and then afterwards, uh, we would stick, some of us would stick around and we would do play groups with the dogs. Um, so that happened in like 2001, 2002. And, um, and so I kind of got hooked and I started, you know, uh, volunteering pretty regularly. And I did that for about three and a half years. And then I came on staff in the behavior department there. And, and then I, from there, I went on to dog training school and, then I started, I supervised a dog adoption program in San Francisco, went on to work at another shelter as a behavior manager, another shelter as a behavior specialist. And then I returned to California uh, because I was working at this wonderful shelter in New Mexico, Animal Humane New Mexico. And um, we, we had come up with programs for owners and uh, class, class classes public classes and we were running playgroups for the dogs and um, and we were, you know, whether it was helping the dogs change their behavior or just supporting their care. Um, I just wondered if I could help more dogs because we were, I mean, we were helping many, but could there, could there be a way to help, help more? And um, that's when I thought about going back to, going to grad school. And um, I come from, you know, my family, um, I'm first generation college. So not even first generation grad school, but first generation college. And I really didn't, I hadn't thought in my life that, you know, I would get a master's degree or a PhD or end up in academia. Trust me, no way. And, um, but uh, yeah, I think I, I, there were people in my life, including my wife that, um, you know, she was trying to get into veterinary school and she had a family of doctors and it really normalized and really and provided me representation that I could be a doctor if I, if, you know, that was possible. And so, um, yeah, so I, I went back to California and, and I had this art background. So I had to do all this bio and physics and, you know, chemistry and all these things that I hadn't done before um, to prepare for grad school. And um, and it was during. It was during, it was like, I, I was taking classes all over. I had like the worst transcripts. I, I could I could support group for transcripts, several of transcripts, and then Evergreen had no grades. So it was just like a lot of like, you know, written evaluations and um, of yourself that you'd have to do self evaluations. And then the instructor would write them. Uh, when I applied to grad school, um, I applied to University of Florida and they, they, they actually got lost the first time because I don't think that they were expecting a, a thick manila envelope of like, Lisa is good at blah, blah, blah. Um, so, um, but when I was looking around for grad schools, uh, I saw a talk by Clive Wynn at Cl uh, Clicker Expo. And he was talking about Sasha Propopova's work in the animal shelter and at that, that to me was just it. And I heard about it and I was like, yeah, that's, that's what I, that's what I want to do. Uh, and so I, um, I applied, I was waitlisted <laughs> and then I got in and then Clive said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to, uh, my wife's taking this job out, out at Arizona state. You can stay here at university of Florida or come study dogs with me at Arizona state. And I said, sign me up. I'm going to Arizona. Um, and so that's where I did my PhD and I, you know, uh, started the PhD fully thinking that I would end up in some sort of 
non-academic position. Like I, I still was non-academic. And um, I can tell you exactly where I was. And it was this really great conversation I had with Clive. And we were walking in Washington, D.C. And he asked me like about what I wanted to do or what, what my plans were. And I was like, oh, you know, I think I'll end up um, working. I still greatly admire the ASPCA. And I was like, maybe one day I could get a job there or whatever. And he's like, well, have you thought about, you know, being a professor, going into academia? And I was like, no, like, that's not for me. He's like, why? And I was just like, I'm not smart enough. I, I can't do that. And he says, why? Why do you think that? And it was so great that I had somebody that like just poked back at that and said, but why? And, um, and I said, I don't know. And that's all it took to like really start the dominoes falling and me thinking like I could do that. And so I finished my PhD. I did a postdoc um, with Clive for four years. Um, um, but we got some really great funding from Maddie's Fund to do all the work that I talked about uh, in fostering. And um, and then I did a year at Coastal Carolina, and now I'm at Virginia Tech. That's a long story. Where, by the way, you are a technically a co-worker of mine, <laughs> although I have never been to Virginia. <laughs> I, I teach online for them, and you and I... Uh, get to get to yeah, meet exactly. when we are talking to students or doing journal club or, or whatnot stuff. So. I know yeah. it's so great. And, um, I, and during my postdoc, I started adjuncting mm-hmm. at Virginia tech, teaching, which is basically um, what I'm doing. Yeah. Be, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it was a really great way for me to kind of get more teaching experience. And, um, and then the cool thing about all that is here, you know, end up at Virginia tech, uh, in 2023, and the uh, staff person at Peninsula Humane Society, where I first did my volunteering, mm. the staff person oversaw me was Eric. Oh, seriously? Bacher. So that's great. Yeah. We've known each other for over two For those who don't know, yeah. the department head so. and Lisa's and my boss. So. <laughs> Eric is great. Yeah. And, a, and another, yes. another Clive yeah. progeny. <laughs> yes. Yes. So there's the two of us studying companion animal behavior. Um, we have another colleague, uh, Lucy Bergamasco, who also um, does uh, companion animals. And there's a little cohort of us, uh, including uh, Lainey Jacobs, that studies behavior and welfare. So it's really fun. We've got a great contingent of folks. And then we have our OMALS program and a whole bunch of other very cool people, yourself definitely included, um, that we get to uh, teach courses about applied animal behavior and welfare. Yeah, it is a great program. Um... I am actually very impressed with it, and I've been to a lot of schools, so I can I have plenty to compare <laughs> it to. Um, and so, for I, I just to put a plug in for those of you who are listening to this and who are like, I want to get more, you know, more into this world. Um, getting an online master's degree through this program is not a bad first step because you don't actually have to move all over the place like Lisa and I both did when we were yeah when we absolutely. were getting our degrees. Yeah. I'm a really big yeah, I'm a really big fan of the OMALS program, um, so folks can look that up on our website. Um, it's the online master's program in agriculture and life sciences, um, but we have a specific concentration, applied animal behavior and welfare, um, and that course is coordinated by Erica Fierbacher, and um, and it's really exciting because the idea of the program is really to increase the number of individuals in our field um, that are a, associate applied uh, animal behaviorists through the Animal Behavior Society. And um, we need more ACABs and CABs out there um, really s- spreading the good word about behavior. 
um, and really helping, you know, doing what we can to professionalize the field and really, and I, and I, and I say that like in a sort of, you know, how can we, what can we do to prioritize the mental health of animals, which is really what behavior and welfare is. There is, of course, the physical component, but often shelters and, um, you know, our communities have veterinarians, but behaviorists um, are often few and far yeah. between. So really trying to help have a pathway so that if folks want to pursue that route, they yeah. can. It's, and it's from the comfort yeah, of their own it's, And it's critical because <laughs> there just, there wasn't a good pathway for a long time. I looked at that when I was going back to school and there wasn't one. So, so people yeah. may wonder why I brought someone who studies shelter dogs onto a podcast about dog breeding. <laughs> but I see it as a lot of the stuff that we talk about is about where dogs come from. And a lot of people mm, perceive that shelters are where dogs come from. And so mm. I wanted to talk about that. And so maybe starting off sure. with what the shelter experience is like for dogs and what your mm. research has shown is sort of the best way forward with with making it with making <laughs> it easier. And I know there's still a lot of questions, yeah. but um Oh, yeah, so, so many. many but... Yeah, I feel like I, I, I feel like I know a speck, but uh, I mean, I think that we could probably all agree that life in the shelter is tough for dogs. Um, as I think we were mentioned before, it's quite loud. That was before um, and, I hit and record. That's been me- <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yes, uh, you know, it's it's quite loud in the shelter, yep. and I think we're all sensitive to that. Whenever um, I talk to folks about our work. I say, you know, like, what are potential stressors? What are things that are challenging for dogs in the environment? And I have to tell you that, like, nine times out of 10, the, f- the first thing that's said is it's the noise. And it is. It's really loud. And um, and that's probably, like, I would say, like, a feature of the shelter has probably been, like, probably the most well-studied. And, and, and it tracks people's um, perception of um, the noise and how loud it is, um, is is on point because it can become much louder than ears should be exposed to. Um, it doesn't mean that it happens throughout the day, but it's those peaks um, that can be quite, um, um, quite detrimental. Um, so... We have that and we have the confinement in the shelter um, that I think is is hard, not necessarily because of the space itself, but the fact that it limits animals from being able to do species typical behaviors and just kind of move with their own sort of choice and agency. They're kind of limited to that. Um, The thing that I've focused a lot on is the social isolation. And I think that, um, that that is probably really challenging for certain types of dogs. I think probably all dogs at a minimum, but for some dogs, I think it's probably really hard. Um, And so, you know, even in our best shelters, right, we have 24 hours in a day and maybe it's, even if they get out for one or two, that's 23, 22, 23 hours left on your own. Um, And on the dog side, you know, it's kind of tough if you really like dogs because it's probably pretty frustrating. You're all around them, but you can't interact. And then if you're scared of dogs, then now you're surrounded by so many of them. So I think like there's a lot of sort of components uh, of the sort of social aspect of of sheltering that is challenging. Um, I also, you know, we think about for the dogs that come in that are being directly surrendered by their owner, 
that seems to be a different experience than dogs that come in um, as a stray. And I think when we think of stray, I think that that's a bit of a misnomer that likely it's just kind of like they were, they're just not as close to that like owner dropping them off as the owner surrendered dogs that maybe they they escaped their their enclosure um they they slipped away but um i think most dogs we're seeing in shelters were owned in some way by people um so i think that stray doesn't really mean anything about the life they led before yeah they i agree i don't think they're on the streets about... for all that long right these days <laughs> they get picked up no. pretty quickly no they do they do i mean i, I mean and i i don't want to discount other areas of the country that do have more free roaming dogs. Um, and I, I've, I've lived in those places, so I know that they, they exist, or I've stayed in those places as well, so I know they exist. Um, but I think in the US, and I, I, I am very like conscious that like probably a lot of what I'm talking about is, is the US shelter experience. Um, but often what I think sometimes we, we maybe don't consider as much because we think about these physical features of the shelter, but um, you know, there's a real lack of, you know, it's unpredictable in the shelter. Um, there's a lack of routine. I mean, the little bit of routine that they do have, maybe when the lights come on, when the lights go off, um, open and close hours, I think those do create a routine. Um, but what happens during the day, um, I think it's probably why dogs, you know, we see that speck of routine during food feeding time and they just get so wound up, um, so excited. Um, but but I, I, I think about that sort of lack of control that dogs have in the shelter, um, where sort of the contingencies that were in, in place in their life previously uh, just don't, their behavior doesn't play out the same way in this environment. So for dogs that are incredibly social, um, you know, they're in their kennel and they have somebody walk by and, they, and they're a social dog. And so they go up to say hi but then that person just keeps on walking by. And so these behaviors that they would do, approaching soft ears, soft eyes, wiggliness, um, they don't get that, that, that interaction. Um, and I, and I, I think that, that that can be really tough. I think it's why for anyone that's volunteered at a shelter and you know the dog can be super chill in the kennel and it's like you click the, the latch and they're like alive. You know, they're like, hello, you're coming to see me finally. You know, Cause you know, that's a really good predictor that they're gonna have interactions. So I think all of those things probably make the shelter, I mean, I think that's a few things that make the shelter pretty challenging for dogs. Um, yeah. So you were, telling me before I hit record about how um, your program has so much urinary cortisol uh, recorded from various <laughs> shelters, which I love. So I have a fairly geeky audience. I think they'll appreciate this, but I'll just, I'll say oh, that good. one okay. of the measures when we try to measure how stressed is the dog in the shelter um, mm -hmm. and if we do this intervention, does it make the dog less stressed? So you want to look at behavior, mm -hmm. obviously, but another thing that you do is you catch the pee and you measure um, how much cortisol is in it. And so you actually have a pretty big database of that right now, which I think is amazing. <laughs> um, so I know that there have been so much pee. It's just numbers now. It's Don't not pee. pee anymore. It's just numbers now. So... Um, <laughs> So I know that there's been a lot of literature looking at various ways of enriching shelters, right? So food toys, mm. olfactory enrichment, sure. um, 
-hmm. you know, playing classical music. Um, so how much does that kind of stuff seem to help? Like, can you detect an effect? <laughs> does it seem to have an effect? Yeah, I think that, I mean, certainly I, I don't want to dissuade shelters from doing these more like environmental um, sort of interventions, because I, I, I mean, I think, you know, we, um, and I can uh, refer your listeners, uh, uh, Erica and I uh, did a chapter recently in the ASPCA, be, uh, I think the shelter veterinarian, get the name of it, but anyway, sorry. Anyway, it's a shelter uh, veterinarian to, uh, and behavior textbook or whatever, but we did a chapter on canine enrichment and what is sort of the literature say and what are the practical takeaways for, for folks that are working in, in sheltering. Um, and so, yeah, what are, what are the things if, you know, you have to take care of the animals, what's the best way to take care of them from a husbandry perspective? Um, and, and certainly, you know, we want to be providing dogs beds. That's like at a, at a minimum, we want them to be elevated off the, off the ground. Um, and so that's a good thing. And when we think about providing them with objects in the kennel, we want to think probably about soft toys, um, because those are the ones they're probably mo most likely going to interact with. And, um, and, and when I say interact with, I think that that's an important thing to think about with enrichment is that it's only enriching if the animal actually does something with it, <laughs> that it can sit in there, which could have an effect on adoptions. Absolutely. And, and, and people see the like, you know, real plush kennel with all the toys and accoutrements. And they're like, wow, that, you know, and th that makes the dog look fabulous. Great. And that's that's one kind of welfare if it actually influenced their adoption. But when we think about the animal's actual experience on that sort of level of welfare, then I think we want to do soft toys because those seem to um, provide uh, or seem to across multiple studies, um, doggos will interact with them the most. Um, of course, talking to a veterinarian, um, you know, and uh, <laughs> yeah, who is that in the room? Uh, you know. I think there's certainly a concern with soft plush toys with unsupervised dogs. Um, but I think that, you know, we weigh that and certainly dogs that come in with histories that, hey, I, I like to chew and ingest, maybe not so much. Um, but I think that we can use data to help inform us, right? Just observations of the dogs. Um, but I think that if we want to give them things, then let's spend our time giving them something they're actually going to, you know, play with or mouth around on or whatever they want to do with it. <laughs> so, um, and I think that like the kind of on the music side of things, I, I think it, it, it seems that we certainly can provide them with classical music, or there's been a study on audiobooks and something like that can help. Um, but I think the big thing is, is that habituation occurs. And, you know, if, if it's the same thing over and over again, um, likely it's not going to necessarily have the same effect. And that has been, been shown that, um, that, um, they can habituate quite quickly. Um, and we still don't know on the whole sort of music side of things, is it actually the sort of content itself, um, or is there some sort of um, noise masking effect? 
because there's a lot of highs and lows in the shelter, doors closing, dogs barking for a second. And does that somehow kind of flatten it out a little bit that helps it helps the dogs then not have to attend to everything? Um, because that's in, in my own work about uh, when we looked at behavioral indicators of welfare, really, when we kind of looked at that spectrum of welfare, the dogs that were doing better um, or cope, I would say coping better, were really just kind of attending to themselves. And the dogs that weren't doing well were the ones that were paying attention to all of the things going around uh, on around them, which of course that's going to be tiring and overwhelming and stressful. Um, so those are, I think some of the things I, I, um, but I, I think and I have I have a bias, so I, I recognize my bias. But I think throughout the literature, we have found pretty consistently that you know getting the dog out of a out of the kennel with the person is the most consistently effective intervention for dogs in shelters. And so when so out of the kennel right. with a person. And so when you're talking about getting them out of the kennel, what kinds of things does that look like? What kinds of interventions have you looked at there? Yeah. So um, I would say I'll talk first about the stuff I haven't done. Okay. And so uh, that's that's work just about getting them out of the kennel and being able to spend time with them in a room, petting them. Um, and it doesn't have to be that long, something like 15 minutes um, of just getting them out of that kennel with a person um, that that can that can reduce uh, reduce uh, dogs cortisol levels. And it's short lived. And I think we all have to be, and there's not a knock on effect where like, then you do it um, like the next day and it builds off the last day or things like that, that it really is one of those things that it's short lived, um, but that doesn't mean we don't do it. Um, I think that it does provide them relief. Um, the The work we've done has taken, has looked at, so interventions like field trips where the dogs leave the shelter for a couple of hours. And in that case, we actually found that dogs' cortisol levels increased. Um, and certainly, you know, um, you know, that's not exactly the story we want to hear. Um, but it also makes sense that, you know, dogs kind of, again, sort of uh, get used to the shelter, the shelter environment that they're in sights, the sounds, the people. Um, and then we take them out and we, we're like, we're going to take you out for a couple hours. We're going to, you know, go uh, run, run up this mountain or we're going to take you to town and get coffee. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a new stimuli for them that they encounter, that they have to, um, you know, um, make sense of and, and, and respond to. And so, uh, and, and so even when we kind of account for the activity of those field trips, they're, they're still, they're still stressful. Um, and that was a study that we did after we looked at sleepovers, which is just an, a night or two. And when dogs get to go into a house and get the opportunity to rest, that's where we see the reduction in cortisol, that the dogs are rest. And you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Is it this longer rest that they get to have and then their cortisol is lower or the cortisol is lower and then they get to rest? Okay. Who knows? I, I don't have an answer for that, but, um, but that's where we see that like the, the being able to rest and recharge is, is an important feature. Um, and when folks, you know, will say to us, well, yeah, but high cortisol, we, we've had this talk not on the podcast, but we've said, hey, you know, bad, you know, sorry, high cortisol in and of itself is not a bad thing. And I agree. Like, I love running. I love doing things that certainly I know increase my cortisol. Um, but 
I think we have to take in consideration a couple things. I think that um, for dogs living in shelters, we know that they have elevated cortisol levels, especially probably during like that first month of, of their stay. Um, so do we really want to in be increasing the level, the cortisol levels of dogs that already have quite high levels? And then I think the second part of that is that for our own dogs, right? I don't want to give up fetching, running, agility, anything with, I mean, like things that my dog enjoys that we know, right? Increase cortisol. But the difference is, is that our dogs in our homes get to go back home and they get to go somewhere that maybe then they can go pass out on the couch. Like I know my Pyrenees is doing right now. Um, you know, and they get to have that experience and, and rest. Um, and, uh, they, you know, they're not in this pretty unpredictable, loud, chaotic environment. So, um, so yeah, so, and then basically, you know, the, the study that we're, that we're just getting, uh, ready to publish is that, or submit for publication is that, um, you know, a week long, uh, fostering stay, um, some work similarly to sleepovers that we see reductions in cortisol and increase in rest. Yeah, kennels are tough. So I tough. remember um, when I was first starting my shelter medicine internship and I was just like, I'm going to be spending a lot of time in kennels. <laughs> it's, it was exhausting. Um, so looking forward, as shelters are changing and the world is changing and we're trying to ask ourselves, where are we headed, right? So... We very much looking back to, you know, where did shelters come from? And there's this history of we collect the stray dogs off the street. We have to have a place to put them. We used to put them in these super crappy places with absolutely no enrichment and, you know, no real effort to adopt them out. And we've come light years from there. But we still have this model where the center of the shelter's activities are seen to be that adoption center. But we're talking about how difficult kennels are for dogs. So um, can I let you go from there and start talking? Or do you want me to ask you a question? <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I agree with you that like, I, I mean, your question, like I think about it myself, like, wow, you have this real interest in, in this environment and yet this environment isn't really great for them. Um, and, and I do think that, um, that, you know, the work that, you know, being kind of, I don't know, led by, I guess, my empirical experience of collecting data and having, you know, testing these different interventions um, has really had me come around to the idea and the importance of foster care for animals when they're away, you know, when they need to change homes. And, and I think that, um, I, I think about, I think about it for sort of a number of reasons. I, 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 I think that one, the shelter itself is stressful. And we've seen from our work that, that when they get to go into a home, they have this opportunity to rest, to recharge, um, and just not be so stressed out. And, and I think that that's important. Um, but I, you know, and, but there's the behaviorist in me. And I think that if we want to have a chance of having good behavioral information about, about these dogs, it is hard to predict their behavior from an in an environment that is so different than what a home is. 
And I, and I think that it's a bit unfair to put that on shelters to say you're supposed to know about how this, this, this dog is going to be in this environment that is so different than what they're, what, how they're caring for the animal. That doesn't mean, you know, with that being said, I mean, cause that's probably like a whole other podcast is that that doesn't mean that we shouldn't measure and observe their behavior in the shelter. Absolutely. And there may be choices that we make in the shelter due to safety or the likelihood of um, finding a home for a dog because of the severity of certain behaviors that may or may not exist in, I would say, we'll call it real life, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist right now. And we have to make choices about it based on that. Um, but I think that foster care can, um, you know, provide us um, a better or, or, you know, kind of better insight into perhaps how they behave in a home. Um, you know, having gone through that recently and finding some fault in the data pre <laughs> sleepover and uh, in the adoptive home, uh, there's likely, you know, a duration issue about that foster care and, you know, making sure the dogs be, are able to spend time in a home in such a way that, you know, we can get good insights. Um, but I think the also, you know, what what I'm interested in is people and their pets staying together, whether that's through the support of a behaviorist and helping helping remedy problems um, or addressing problems in such a way that both individuals can live together. Uh, but it's also about preserving the human animal bond. And and I think that. It, you know, the work that we've done on safety net fostering, so the fostering of owned animals um, when their folks can't care for them temporarily, um, really needs to be a much more prominent feature in animal shelters because we can't break the bond just to reform it again. When if we if we spend those resources to keeping those two folks together, sorry, that those two beings together, the person and the dog, um, that, you know, we can we fulfill our mission and, you know, which, you know, whatever, you know, the organ, you know, the organ, all the, you know, animal welfare organizations, the shelters have different sort of missions. And I don't want to say that that would necessarily resonate with all of them, but I do think that, um, you know, helping a dog not go through the shelter experience, um, and helping them stay with a person that they've had a bond with, I think is really important. And, for those who don't know, shelters are absolutely moving in this direction. Um, so I don't, I don't want it to sound like Lisa and I are sitting here pontificating about like <laughs> shelters should do this. Um, can I, can I ask you to talk more about what that looks like? Is that stuff that you're familiar with? I know we're getting outside of what you've done research on, but I also know you're more in the shelter world right now than I am. Oh, sure. Well, and we've done, uh, you know, we're hoping to write up for publication our work on safety net fostering next year. Um, and so, yeah, I can happily talk about it. So um, really what that looks like, I mean, it can be it can be different for different shelters, but essentially it's helping owners in the community. And that can be through any number of life situations that just happen, you know, whether, you know, and the, the one that I think of so often um, is hospitalization. And what if you don't have someone to care for your pet? Does that mean then that your pet has to be surrendered? And so, and, and you know, there could be people listening be like, you don't know one person that could care for your pet, but could, you know, but do they have, 
are they capable? Can they do it? You know, you can have people in your life, but that doesn't mean that they can take on your pet. Um, and, but a variety of reasons. Um, and I think especially when we think about, um, um, the housing instability that is so, um, just apparent in our society right now and, and how, um, yeah, how, how fluid a housing situation can be and what that can mean when you have a pet, when pet friendly housing can be quite hard to come by, uh, especially if you have a large breed dog. Uh, I think that, um, that these, that these types of programs, um, essentially how they work is that they're facilitated by the shelter. So, uh, shelters work with the owners, um, and bringing and working together with owners and their pets in, in situations that the shelter feels like they can be, they can be, you know, they can help them. Um, but the shelter works on the, um, arrangement and communication with the owner and the foster care giver takes care of the pet during this time. And, um, and what we found, so we helped, I think it was 18 shelters across the U.S. launch these programs. So we um, we um, interviewed about a dozen uh, different organizations that had these types of programs in place a couple of years ago. And we just wanted to know about best practices, what worked, what didn't work. So we trained up our shelters. Um, we helped them collect data over about six to nine months. Um and we had in total nearly 500 pets that were enrolled in the program. Um, and and uh, of those, uh, nearly 80% were able to reunite with their owner. That's lovely. So that's a large so, number of animals that otherwise could have just ended up in the shelter, maybe been older animals or a type of animal that was hard to adopt out. Yep, absolutely. And the cool thing that we see with safety net fostering and and why I am such a fan is because I think this type of foster caregiving really appeals to to folks that in maybe uh, caregiving for a shelter pet may not. Um, because when you caregive for a shelter pet, you're thinking about, I gotta find this dog a home, right? And um, and that can be sometimes for some folks, they love that and they love the like promotion of it and helping that, you know, matchmaking. And there's other folks that really just want to care give, you know, that like, I just want to care for the dog Can the shelter kind of figure out the home thing. Um, and in this type of foster caregiving, this dog or cat, we worked with cats, dogs, t turtles, fish in this, in this program, uh, you know, that's already taken care of, you know, the caregiver is really helping keep that bond together with the owner. And like, what an awesome, I don't know, what an awesome thing to do to open up your home and say, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take on the take on this dog. And the cool thing is, is that most of the dog most of the pets in our program are are during our study, um, they only the the pets were only in the program for like two months. So how cool is it? that, you know, these dogs can hang out with a person for a couple of months and then go back to their person. And like you said, not spend that much time in the show. Yeah. It's a, it's a lovely gift to give both to the, well, to the dog, to the owner of the dog and to the shelter that then is saved many resources. So, Absolutely. so are there, what other things can shelters do to start reducing the number of animals that require, that require sitting in kennels until they're adopted? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that when I think about, you know, things like safety net fostering, and certainly that's great for animals that are owned. What do we do for animals that... Um, animals that are surrendered, for example. That, that, yeah. 
that are, yeah, that need a home. And I think that, again, I kind of see foster caregiving as a way in which we can, you know, reduce the number of dogs in, in, in shelters. Um, because when we think about the shelter itself, um, it's limited, right? We, we only have X amount of kennels, right? Maybe we have 80 kennels for, for dogs to stay or, or, or 200 or four, whatever, however large the shelter is, but it is limited, but really the number of kennels in our community are limitless really. And what I kind of care about or what I'm interested in is really this idea that how do we make foster caregiving more caregiver centric? Um, and likely what that means is, um, is shorter durations of foster care. Um, when we've surveyed folks, I think they, there's like that sweet spot of about three weeks where folks like to do foster care. Um, and really giving our caregivers more choice and control um, over, over caregiving. Um, cause I think oftentimes, you know, from, from the shelter's perspective, it's such a relief when an animal goes into foster care, like, oof, you know, like, uh, especially if they're not doing well. Um, but I think that, um, that, uh, checking in with our caregivers and allowing them to opt out and say, Hey, you know what? I, I, I've had enough and not making them the jerk for saying that they've had enough, that we all kind of reach our limit. Um, but what we've seen with our shorter term fostering programs. Um, so for example, we just had a, a study published a couple of weeks ago where we looked at, um, sleepovers and field trips on the adoption likelihood. And what we found is that when dogs experience a field trip, they're over five times more likely to be adopted than a dog that hasn't gone on a field trip. And if you're a sleepover dog, 14 times. Oh, wow. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and another key finding from that paper was that when the shelters had more folks from their community, not involved with the shelter, so not a volunteer, not a staff person, but just somebody in their community care, get, uh, doing a field trip, doing a sleepover, those programs were better performing, meaning that they were sending out more dogs, had more caregivers involved, took, took shorter to collect their data. So they were, you know, in all essence, they were more successful. So I think that we have to, you know, we, we've talked about this, um, in our papers that vol volunteering in a shelter it is, especially caregiving, it's high stakes volunteerism. It's like, a lot of, lot of reward, but can potentially be some heartache. And I think we've got to be just more sensitive to the needs of caregivers and kind of shape up that behavior of, you know, just <laughs> the sleep, the field trips to the sleepovers to longer term care. Um, and really letting any animal have a caregiving experience. Um, because what we found during the pandemic, for example, if somebody comes in, and they never care. They've never done any caregiving for this shelter, and uh, they they decide to hey, I, I, I come in. I want I want to I want to foster a dog. They are more likely uh, about four times more likely to adopt than a caregiver that's done it before. Mm -hmm. And if they have they don't have a dog in their house, like it's going to happen. So we have to kind of think about you know and and trial adoption programs big fan of course cuz they're kind of the same thing right you walk in and you give it a test drive and about 3 quarters of those uh, with those dogs about 3 quarters of the time they ended up being adopted so the, they they work they have a higher return rate absolutely um but but they work and they're really 
just a sleepover. It's just like, I don't think the dog knows whether it's a failed adoption or not or a failed trial. It, they got out. Um, but when we think about those first-time foster caregivers, they're really just doing the same thing. And so I think there's just all these ways that our community can help, um, but we kind of have to be receptive to it. And then we have to, and then on the back end, thinking about how do we get to help the community um, and these ways in which we can preserve the human-animal bond and keep pets in homes. Yeah, which makes me want to give a shout out to food banks. So we haven't talked about yeah. food banks. Do you have any experience with those? Do you... No, we haven't. We haven't done any work um, on like yeah, food banks or food pantries for for pet owners. Mm -mm. But that seems to me to be a fantastic way to give back to the community and also to help keep dogs in their homes. And Absolutely. then there's um, low-cost veterinary clinics, another thing shelters yep. can do to also help because sometimes people surrender their dogs because they can't afford the veterinary care, which I know you yes. have personal experience <laughs> with being on the other end of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that access to care, whether it's, you know, medical, you know, the physical health of the animal or behavioral health of the animal, I think, you know, really, these are issues that need to be addressed because we can't make it hard for people to do the right thing. It's a, a fundamental belief that was instilled in me <laughs> by my economist <laughs> parents when they raised me. It's all about incentives. And that's how I see the world. Oh, make oh it, my gosh. Get the I incentive to do the right thing and then make it and then remove the impediments to doing the right thing. And it will happen. Oh. You don't have to yell at people about it. You just have to make it easy and show them why. Sort of like dog training, actually. Oh, oh my gosh. I love your parents. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so then I guess the question is, can we imagine a world in which shelters are not built around the adoption center, but they're built around some of these other um, these other programs that we've been talking about? Like, would that still be, is that is that a future we could imagine? Would that be an animal shelter? I mean, I, I think it's a lot more about animal welfare. Yeah. Um, and so I think it, it ultimately, I think, depends on the organization and their mission why are they there? You know, like sort of question their existence. Uh, but uh, which, you know, we all need to do on a regular basis. Uh, but thinking about that and why, why are we here? What are we doing? What we're doing? Um, and and for me, I mean, I think animal welfare uh, when it, you know, when it comes to to our pets, that's what we're at least talking about right now is, gosh, there's so many ways that we can positively impact the lives of people and their pets, whether, yes, adoption. I mean, it's a huge one. I mean, that is, you know, uh, potentially a 15-year, 20-year commitment. That's pretty big. Um, but I think like you brought up, whether it's accessing um, food or veterinary care or behavioral services, um, that's so important, the life of the animal or whether they pass away and, and you want to be a part of a pet support group because you really need to talk, you know, about about how, what you're experiencing with other folks that are experiencing it. I think there's, you know, and I've talked to other shelters, you know, I, I have a very awesome privilege that I get to work together with shelters and help them um, with their behavioral services. Um, it's a consultation service that Dr. Fierbacher and I have and um, through Virginia Tech. Um, and, you know, we talk a lot about like, what is the life of the pet? 
And how can we be a part of that? Whether it's dog training classes or puppy socialization classes or, or you know, vet care or you know, any of these different ways, really, I think making our animal shelters or animal welfare organizations um, more a part of the community. Because uh, I think the, the less that we're separate and the more that we're integrated into the community, then um, I think people will come to us. And, and when we think about those sort of, I think about um, the ways in which we adopt in the shelter and, and, um, and the amazing role that adoption counselors have bringing people and pets together. And I think that, you know, it's like striking that sort of balance that we're able to, here's what we know. And here's what you're looking for. And maybe your pets, you know, we have to think of that. But hopefully the community gets to see us as sort of these experts, but these experts in, in care, you know, in caregiving and that, you know, we can help bring together, um, you know, these great matches that they can um, have uh, successful lives together. But at the same time, also being there when it doesn't work out, because like I said, kind of in the, you know, toward, more towards the beginning is that. It's very hard to know what the dogs, um, just based on the in the shelter, how they might um, behave in a home and what can we do. And I think that we also have to normalize and, and not demonize that sometimes it's just not going to work out. And sometimes it's about about, you know, that behavior, right? What we see right in the beginning when a, when a pet comes home that we realize it's, it's quite incompatible. Um, but then there's things that happen later on in the life, you know, later on in the relationship that seemingly are much more about the person and a change in their living situation. And I think we can have programs around that to probably try to help reduce those. But I think we gotta be okay with sometimes it's not going to work out, but that hopefully we have this really great relationship between the, you know, between the adopter and ourselves, that they reach out to us for help and we are there when it doesn't work out. And hopefully because they have this great experience with us that they decide, hey, you know what? That dog didn't work out, but there's pro there's probably another dog at the shelter that could work for our family. Um, and that's what I'd love to see, love to see more of, that they do come yeah. back even though they didn't have a positive experience. Because it's yeah, going to happen I, sometimes. It does. And I it, and I hear that story, right, of like, oh, the, the person adopted a dog that didn't work out and then they asserted they would never come back to a shelter again. And I love yeah. the idea of first try to keep the pet in the home. Second, if the pet can't stay in the home, try to not have it be in a kennel. Um, yeah. Right. So have it be in foster care, um, but then also work with the community in an understanding way. Yeah. to um to support the community and the dogs yeah did i say that as a good summary I, oh my gosh yeah i mean i, I think about it and uh a shelter we're working with um uh you know i i think a, a i think uh shelters are struggling right now there's a lot of animals in care and it's and it's and it's been hard to place um kind of as as the pandemic has ended um and one of the things we were we were chatting about is you know there's there's this um, well why 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 do why do people why are people not able to keep their pets um, and so you know try and understand more about that and you, and talking to folks that are surrendering the pets that we have an opportunity to talk to and certainly that can be informative but you know I pose the question what about just surveying our communities and if you don't have a pet but you want one. Why not? 
why don't you have a pet yet? Because they, which probably, you know, constitute a way bigger <laughs> percentage of our communities, maybe they want a pet, but they don't know how to acquire it, or maybe they're not quite ready yet, but they could foster. I think that there's like, there's just so many more ways we can be involved in our communities that I think ultimately um, help the animals like just so much. And also, you know, I think make our communities richer for it. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> hey, friends. Some of you have asked how to support the podcast, so we've set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing this podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functionalbreeding. You could also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally, or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Attila Martin. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the FDC, check out the functionalbreeding.org website. Enjoy your dogs. Enjoy your dogs.